Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Climate change is here and building a system that can protect us from the ravages of extreme weather it brings and contribute to reducing carbon emissions that cause it is going to be a problem no state will be able to avoid. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome back to Political Climate, a biweekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, as always, Julia Piper, and I'm thrilled to be kicking off this year with all of you. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to a really great 2022. I hope everyone was able to rest over the holidays, enjoy time with their loved ones, with their families. I'm coming to you now from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, where I'm from, and I'm still back home visiting my family. While back in LA, I'm excited to say that my house is being renovated as we speak with a snazzy new electric induction stove, an EV charger, and a heat pump. This is my electrification journey, and I hope to share more of it with you over time. It was not the smoothest, and I have to say that I'm not completely electrifying my home, uh, despite having the amazing Nate the House Whisperer Adams come give me a home comfort assessment about a year ago. But that's a story for another day. But nonetheless, excited to have things to be looking forward to this year. I know we're all still in the middle of a pandemic. And of course, here in the U.S., efforts to curb emissions have hit a roadblock. Just ahead of the holidays, we had the bitter news that Senator Manchin would not be voting for the Biden administration's big social and climate spending bill, the Build Back Better Act. This legislation was really central to meeting U.S. climate goals. And you can go back and listen to our podcast just before the holidays where we broke down our thoughts on what we thought would come next for the bill and the climate provisions in it. As of today, as we record, we've heard that Senator Manchin thinks the climate provisions could be workable. However, he has not formally kicked back up negotiations with Democratic leadership. So we'll have to hit pause on that, and I'll come back in a couple weeks with my co-hosts Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton to tackle that conversation. For now, let's turn to where we have seen a lot of action. We don't cover this enough on the podcast, but during 2021 and always, there's a lot of state policy action taking place. 
So I'm excited to cover that with one of my colleagues from Green Tech Media and who is now a colleague at Canary Media, Jeff St. John. He's going to walk us through some of the major developments that happened in this past year, where we saw environmental justice at the center of these state actions. We saw things like resilience really get prioritized. And Jeff's going to walk us through a number of those themes, as well as specific developments in six key states, as well as a few more. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Political Climate. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me, Julia. Just to set the scene here, you have been covering the energy transition broadly for quite a while. Maybe just start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and some of the things you've been covering now for Canary. Yeah, you and me both. I've been a reporter for about 20 years or so at newspapers and then online. But for the majority of that time, I've been lucky enough to make clean energy and energy technology my central beat. You and I both got to do that at Green Tech Media. Uh, what an amazing time that was. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when Green Tech folded early last year, we were just stunned by the support we got from our audience and the folks in the industries we cover to launch this new news organization to carry on the work. That led to the well-known Clean Energy Decarbonization Research Group, RMI, aka Rocky Mountain Institute, backing our relaunch as a nonprofit news outlet focused on the fight against climate change. That's how Canary Media was born. And since its launch in April 2021, we've been going strong, building our audience and our team, and generally having a tremendously busy time doing it. And I've been covering the gamut, including things that I didn't cover as much at Green Tech Media, which was largely focused on the world of electricity, including carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, clean hydrogen development, and broader decarbonization policy. And in amidst our attempts to cover the ins and outs of federal clean energy and climate change policy, we have been spending a lot of time trying to delve into what's happening at individual states which may not get as much attention as it deserves. Obviously, we are big fans of Canary Media here at Political Climate, where we are part of the Canary Media family. And I just have loved working with you, Jeff, and it's great to be reconnected in this capacity. And so, yeah, you mentioned states. So just as a little teaser here, we saw that Oregon and Illinois both joined the ranks of requiring 100 percent zero carbon electricity in 2040 and 2050, respectively. And they passed those laws in recent months. Washington state passed a cap and trade bill, which we'll talk about. Massachusetts and Rhode Island adopted 2050 net zero goals. North Carolina adopted a law requiring a 70 percent emissions cut by 2030 from 2005 levels and established a mid-century net zero goal. Those are some of the developments I know you've been covering, and there's a lot to unpack there on how those bills came to be. First, let's talk about why states matter. I know you've looked recently at the U.S. Climate Alliance, which is a bipartisan coalition of U.S. governors in several states. How do they frame the action that they're taking and the kind of impact that states can have on climate? The U.S. Climate Alliance, basically, they, they got together the day after former President Trump announced the U.S. was exiting the Paris Agreement. And the whole goal was to carry on the decarbonization work that wasn't going to be happening at the federal level, at the state level. As of last year, we've got 22 states involved, including uh, as well as Puerto Rico. And these states collectively represent 62 percent of U.S. GDP 56% of U.S. population and 43% of U.S. emissions. As has been well documented, these state actions were pretty extraordinary. 
By the end of Trump's term in office, 10 states, along with Washington, D.C., had passed laws mandating 100% clean or renewable energy targets within the next three decades, along with another five states instituting 100% targets via executive order by their governors. And this is a pretty significant accomplishment. In December, the alliance released an analysis that found that if all its members put into place the policies and programs they would need to meet their individual GHG targets, they would collectively reduce emissions by 43% by 2030 and 84% by 2050. Now, to be clear, that's not where we need to be. Obviously, the Biden administration's goal of net zero GHG emissions by 2050 is going to take a lot more work. And it's going to take more state action if federal action is not forthcoming. So let me just clarify one thing there. You're saying that these targets from these U.S. Climate Alliance states can reduce their own emissions within those states by up to 84 percent by 2050. But that's just within those states. We still have to meet the federal national goals of overall net zero by 2050. So you mentioned 100% clean energy targets from the U.S. Climate Alliance states. Uh, Those aren't all the states that are taking action. Nebraska recently became one of the latest states to commit to 100% clean electricity by 2050. That's through a decision by the Nebraska Public Power District. And so we're actually seeing whether or not they're part of these other groups like the U.S. Climate Alliance. These states take action at varying levels, either through the legislature or through regulatory bodies, to really step up climate action and take advantage of some of the benefits that clean energy and clean electricity has to offer. So with Nebraska now involved, according to the Clean Energy States Alliance, there are 21 states plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, so a total of 23 entities that have some kind of clean energy goal today. Jeff, do you have any other thoughts on the electricity piece? Only to restate the common understanding that decarbonizing the electricity sector is the first step in broader decarbonization. Lower carbon, going to zero carbon electricity is going to be vital to allow the electrification of transport and building heating and industrial processes to accomplish decarbonization on their own terms. So electricity first is an important concept to keep in mind, I think, as we look at what different states have done differently last year some tackling economy-wide emissions reductions and mandates, and some focusing on the electricity sector for one reason or another. Let's take a closer look at some of the individual states that you covered recently, Jeff, in a piece for Canary Media that we will make sure to link to in the show notes. And these are six states that happen to take some of the boldest actions in 2021. First up, let's look at Washington state, which passed the Climate Commitment Act last year. That bill sets a carbon cap that will reduce economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions by 95 percent by 2050. Crucially, the CCA is authorized to remain in effect until its emission goals are reached, which means it doesn't need to be reauthorized and go back into a political fight. The cap also includes electricity and transportation, oil and gas, and more, to the point where somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of the state's total greenhouse gas emissions will be covered by the bill. So, Jeff, first thing here, I mentioned this was a cap and invest system that ultimately passed in Washington. And I think it took a couple bites at the apple for the state, despite having Governor Jay Inslee, a climate champion, at the helm. Can you explain first what cap and invest means and why this happened to get so much traction this time around in Washington state? 
the term cap and invest is essentially the same thing as cap and trade, you know, a system that sets caps on large measurable sources of greenhouse gas emissions and then requires those sources to either reduce their emissions below those caps or purchase carbon offsets to make up the difference. That's the trade part. The term invest is is meant to highlight what's done with the revenue collected from those offset purchases. You invest it. In the case of Washington State, uh, invested in climate change mitigation and adaptation. And of course, cap and trade is the fundamental framework of the European Union's emissions trading system that's been in place for some time. But in the U.S., it's been largely a state-by-state affair. California got the ball rolling with passage of its Global Warming Solutions Act in 2006, creating its own cap and trade framework. And the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, was launched in 2009 in the U.S. Northeast and now includes 11 states. But as I'm sure you and other folks know, that the track record on cap and trade has been somewhat mixed. Yeah, As I mentioned, I think Washington state even really struggled to get this approved by the voters. Do you have any idea why this latest bill was successful? I would have to defer to our resident expert on Washington state policy and politics, David Roberts, uh, who actually wrote the story on the Washington state legislation for Canary Media. I do know that it's been a priority of Governor Inslee for some time. And I also know that Washington state does have a Democratic controlled legislature, which, as David Roberts says, can be and has been until recently the one key factor in passing significant climate change legislation at the state level. But, you know, I I think one of the important things to point out about what Washington did with its cap and trade or cap and invest legislation is that it was able to learn from the problems of the cap and trade systems that have come before, particularly in California, its West Coast neighbor, and craft policies meant to avoid those problems. As David's article mentions, Washington State's cap and invest mechanism includes mechanisms to keep the price of offsets within set upward boundaries so that costs don't overwhelm emitters. At the same time, the state can limit the issuance of offsets if targets aren't met. These policies set a ceiling and a floor, respectively, on the scope of the offset trading regime. Being able to manage and adjust in this way is pretty important considering the experience of California, where an overabundance of offsets, some would argue, allowed emitters to cheaply buy their way out of reducing emissions. So let's shift now to Oregon. It's another state that attempted a cap-and-trade piece of legislation. It's tried for quite some time. I think we'll remember the big debacles when Republican legislators actually fled the state to avoid votes on this bill in Oregon, not once, but actually twice in 2019 and 2020. Cap-and-trade was ultimately scrapped in the state. But then in 2021, Oregon did pass an important climate law, which sets the country's most aggressive timeline for decarbonizing electricity, with the state's two investor-owned utilities pledging to supply only carbon-free power by 2040. So what do you think happened in Oregon? They didn't get the cap-and-trade bill they were looking at for a long time, but they did get something done. What was different about 2021? Well, my colleague Julian Spector interviewed Oregon State Representative Khan Pham, the Democrat who was one of the bill's chief sponsors, to learn more about that. And the answer she gave Julian is that this was the result of lots and lots and lots of outreach among the state's diverse communities and interest groups, and then taking their needs and concerns into account in crafting the legislation. Pham was a climate justice organizer before she was elected to the state legislature. I suppose you could say she still is. And this month-long set of listening sessions she and her fellow organizers held across the state brought forward some key concerns. 
One of the big problems for Oregon's cap and trade legislative efforts in the past was opposition to the bills from some key interest groups, such as trucking and transport industries, the business community at large, forestry and farming communities, who are worried about the potential for rising costs of fuel and energy uh, and the potential for mandates in hard-to-measure industries causing adverse consequences. The bill that passed last year was far more limited. It focused on cutting emissions from the electricity sector, which is a big chunk of the problem, but far from all of it. At the same time, FAM highlighted to Julian that doing the outreach she and her fellow organizers did brought to the fore the need from communities for policies that would not only reduce emissions statewide, but reduce local pollution and grow economic and job opportunities in those communities. The law took this into account. It sets aside tens of millions of dollars for community clean energy projects. It requires project labor agreements and prevailing wage and benefits provisions for large-scale clean energy projects developed in the state, much as Illinois' new 100% clean energy law does. And it sets up systems to manage rising electricity costs for customers and holds provisions to amend its emissions reduction scheme in the event that the path that that sets the state's utilities on may lead to problems with reliability or excessive cost to supply electricity. Hmm. So it sounds like a more nuanced bill ultimately passed, but nonetheless, something that sounds like it meets the needs of the moment. Certainly. It was what was passable, I suppose one might say. I think also it was what people in the state wanted. I really think that this kind of broad community outreach and participation in the crafting of legislation is a really important aspect of successful legislative efforts in a number of the states we talked about in that story. Yeah, I think there is required input on an ongoing basis with low-income ratepayers, environmental justice groups, federally recognized tribes and others to develop these strategies. And that seems to be a change in the way that not only policy ends up being, but a change in the way policy is actually crafted um, in a way that, you know, not every stakeholder got to be at the table in that way in the past. But now looking forward, these provisions have huge implications for clean energy in Oregon. What else do you think we should look out for in that state in the coming years? Well, you know, it's interesting that the state's two big investor-owned utilities, that's Portland General Electric and Pacific Power, which is a subsidiary of Pacificor, the big six-state northwest Rocky Mountain utility. Both of those utilities have already embarked on some significant shifts toward clean energy as part of their future resource plans. Both are in the midst of enormous gigawatt-scale procurements of wind, solar, and battery storage to meet those resource plans. And it's also important to note that the last coal plant in Oregon was shut down in 2020, which gives the state a leg up. Now, Oregon's new law does cover electricity generated out of state in its emissions measurements, and it does ban new natural gas power plants in the state. Pacificor does plan to keep some of its coal-fired power plants in other states open for decades longer, and it has proposed building new natural gas plants across its six-state service territory in the coming years. But that's a bigger issue than just Oregon alone. So let's leave it there on Oregon. You mentioned in the Oregon segment just there that there was a commonality with Illinois, where the state passed the Climate Equitable Jobs Act, and the commonality there being really strong labor provisions. Now, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act is a environmentally ambitious, worker-friendly, justice-focused bill, uh, one of the most, I think, of any state in the country, and it's now the first state in the Midwest to commit to net zero carbon emissions. Nuclear power was also at the center of this bill, with intense pressure from diverging interests, particularly around subsidies for nuclear power plants. 
First, let's start with the labor piece. What was it about Illinois that was different uh, in the latest bill that passed there in 2021? Well, Illinois has been trying to pass a version of this bill for two years now, and whether or not it would successfully pass it this year was kind of an open question. Legislators tried to bring it to the floor but failed earlier in the spring. And one of the key issues at stake was the fate of two coal power plants downstate. In particular, there's an enormous coal power plant in the south uh, of Illinois, which is by far the largest in the state and among the top 10 carbon emitters in the country, that both of these plants are municipally owned power plants. And the economic fortunes of the communities they're in is largely tied up with how long they can remain open and how the economic impacts of their closure will be mitigated through state policy. These issues really were at stake and under intense negotiation in this bill up to the last minute. Eventually, the bill will allow these power plants to stay open longer than environmental advocates and Governor Pritzker would have wanted. But keeping them open did allow the bill to pass. This is getting into some of the labor provisions. Labor unions were concerned about the economic impacts of closing these plants. Labor groups were also quite concerned that the clean energy development that would take place in the state would give labor a seat at the table. Illinois' bill contains some significant labor provisions, including project labor agreements, prevailing wages on all large-scale clean energy projects, as well as diversity requirements to ensure that projects have recruited qualified candidates and apprentices from communities of color. This may be one of the most stringent labor and equity requirements of any state clean energy program. And we've seen some of its provisions, some similarities to what Illinois has built into its legislation, which I should note has been in the works for some two years now, reflected in the bill passed by Oregon, as well as similar labor standards passed in Connecticut, New York, and Washington. Hmm. So we really do see states borrowing playbooks from one another. Absolutely. No, I think that's one of the one of the ways in which the Climate Alliance and efforts like it have really helped cement a set of best practices for how to get effective and kind of broad-based support for some significant climate legislation. Well, another element of this bill I mentioned is nuclear power. And we did talk to David Roberts, also Rhetoric Canary, as you noted, uh, about this bill last fall. I encourage you to go listen to that episode. We'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. 
We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the cleantech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in cleantech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Okay, moving down to Colorado. In that state, legislation passed in 2021 will set enforceable greenhouse gas emission reduction rules for the state's electricity industry and oil and gas sectors, along with adopting stronger environmental justice frameworks aimed at helping communities hardest hit by pollution. Now, the bill that passed in Colorado uh, under Governor Polis was the result of a lot of debate. I know Polis actually pushed back on certain elements of the bill that progressives wanted in the state. So, Jeff, could you lay out for us what you saw happening in Colorado in 2021 and how they overcame those debates and challenges to get something signed last year? Well, I think the short answer to that question is that Governor Polis got what he wanted, which was a law that doesn't set strict mandates for emissions reductions from every sector of the economy. The bill that was passed does set emissions mandates for electricity generation, mandates that are roughly in line with what the state's major investor-owned utility, Excel Energy, has already set as its own goals in the states it operates in. The law also sets emissions reduction mandates for the oil and gas industries and the industrial sector at large. But it didn't set the same kind of mandates on transportation and buildings. That's something the backers of the initial legislation were pushing for in hopes of ensuring that the state not slip on meeting its targets for economy-wide emissions reductions. But Paulus opposed that on the grounds that it could expose large swaths of the economy to costs and compliance challenges that could harm broader economic growth. It's worth noting, though, that other bills passed in Colorado last year do take cracks at decarbonizing transportation through some significant incentives for electrical vehicles and public transit. And four energy efficiency laws were passed last year, including an interesting clean heat standard that will task Excel, the state's main utility, which sells both electricity and natural gas, to start to reduce emissions from the gas its customers use and incentivize it to replace gas-fired heating and appliances with electric versions. So rounding it out here with two more states uh, with significant policy developments, the one I want to go to next is North Carolina. And this is an interesting state because it's one of the few red states that took really meaningful policy action last year. And its climate reduction law doesn't move quite as aggressively as others that we've been talking about so far. But it does set a goal to cut electricity sector carbon emissions by 70 percent by 2030 and to reach net zero emissions by 2050. And that would only apply, however, to the dominant utility in the state, Duke Energy, which has already set its own company wide targets. So the law is still notable, however, for being one of the only significant ones of its kind passed by a Republican controlled legislature. 
So I guess, Jeff, what are your takeaways from this bill? Uh, What were the provisions that you saw Republicans getting behind in that state? And what were the dynamics that enabled this to pass? Well, I think the best way to summarize the clean energy industry's point of view on this bill is to quote the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, which was, by the way, one of the only stakeholder groups representing clean energy or environmental interests that was actually allowed into the negotiations that crafted what emerged. When the bill was reintroduced with bipartisan support in October, NCSEA said that it was a compromise with significant problematic provisions, but that it still represented, quote, a momentous step forward in North Carolina's clean energy future. It's important to note that North Carolina is the first southeastern state to pass anything like the clean energy standard or carbon standard that North Carolina now has. And that's an important accomplishment. NCSEA was dead set against the first draft of this bill when it came out in June. A pretty unanimous point of view from environmental, clean energy, consumer advocates, and environmental justice groups across the board, as well as from Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat. What rubbed everyone in this camp the wrong way the most were the provisions in the bill that would essentially bar state regulators from having a say in how Duke chose to replace many of the coal-fired power plants it's promised to close by 2030 as part of its broader goal to achieve net zero carbon reductions by 2050. The language in that first version of the bill would have pretty much mandated that Duke be allowed to replace a number of these coal power plants with natural gas plants whether or not those were the most cost-effective, let alone emissions reduction-effective options. That was a non-starter for Governor Cooper and many other groups. And after the bill went back and after the legislature completed their budget process for the year, the bill re-emerged in October. And it emerged in a form that Governor Cooper agreed to sign into law. The final version of the bill took out those provisions that would have given Duke an end run around regulators to replace its coal power plants with natural gas. And it also reduced the potential burden on Duke customers to bear the cost of securitizing the shutdown of its coal plants, which was something consumer advocates were worried about. And of course, it set the state's first carbon standard, matching Duke's self-set goals, but still a big deal since it's the first Southern state to do something like this. And for solar developers, the bill also boosted solar development in North Carolina, building on an existing program that allows Duke itself to bid on and build 55% of the utility scale solar called for in the coming years, but does leave 45% of that to independent developers. A unusual arrangement, not common in states outside the Southeast, What's so interesting about that is it shows that whether it's a utility or an independent company, everyone's kind of getting on board with the energy transition. It's sort of a matter of who's getting to participate more or less. But hey, in the grand scheme of climate action, you know, good to have more participants at the table. It's true. I will say that the bill that did emerge was heavily influenced by Duke in a way that did disappoint many of the clean energy advocates involved. You know, Back in 2019, Governor Cooper issued an executive order that proposed a whole range of reforms to North Carolina's energy regulatory regime. Those reforms included the idea of opening energy markets to competition, 
allowing independent developers to procure and build power projects. And that executive order yielded a multi-stakeholder policy proposal that got the backing of big corporations with a lot of data center operations in the state, like Amazon, Apple, Google, and big retailers like Starbucks, Target, and Walmart. These companies have long sought to have more leeway to be able to source or procure clean energy for their North Carolina operations. But the bill that emerged from the Republican legislature did not contain those provisions. Mm, I see. So just sticking on this point for one more moment, I mentioned that Nebraska has passed a 100 percent clean energy target through its utility regulators I think that's similar in some ways here, where for better or worse, the utilities are getting involved in setting these targets and are in some ways ahead of where the legislatures go. And the legislatures actually step in and catch up and then add more parameters in the bills they pass. Is is that a fair assessment? I'd say it's certainly true in North Carolina. It's certainly true in Nebraska. I think it'll be very interesting to see how that dynamic plays out in other states with utilities that have set goals. Southern Company, which operates in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, and the panhandle of Florida, has made its own net zero by 2050 commitment, albeit one that is seen as problematic by a number of environmental groups. Ameren, the utility that serves Southern Illinois and much of Missouri, has set its own targets. There are a number of states with Republican-controlled legislatures that are home to utilities that are looking at net zero targets, how that dynamic plays out in those states would be very interesting to watch. Let's round it out now on the East Coast. We've gone west to east here. And this is the final state I want to talk to you about, uh, at least from your list that you published recently, Jeff. And that's the state of Massachusetts. In that state, Republican Governor Charlie Baker opposed the Democratic-controlled legislature's plan to update the state's 2008 clean energy legislation. He actually vetoed the first version of the bill back in January. Legislators then drafted a new version, which incorporated some of Baker's proposed amendments, which he then signed into law in March. So we just talked about North Carolina, where there is a democratic governor and Republican-held legislature. In Massachusetts, they have a Republican governor and Democratic-controlled legislature. So in some ways, it seems like the inverse of the North Carolina situation. Did it also play out similarly in terms of what actually passed in Massachusetts? What are your thoughts, Jeff? To be fair, the Massachusetts situation was a lot different and much less fraught than North Carolina's in terms of getting alignment and agreement Uh, between the different sides of the aisle. You know, in January, Governor Baker did veto the clean energy bill late in the state's legislative cycle, saying essentially that he didn't have enough time to negotiate a compromise on certain aspects of the bill with Democratic leaders in the state legislature. Democrats in the state legislature pushed back against that characterization of what was going on. But when the legislature resumed work in March, that negotiation took place and the resulting bill was largely the same as the bill that Baker vetoed. It did have a number of what legislators described as technical changes, largely aimed at satisfying Baker's concerns about the costs associated with building low-income housing and potential challenges for builders based on the building codes that the law would implement. But it's important to note that Massachusetts has had clean energy legislation on the books since 2008, and that law it passed last year was much broader than just the electricity sector. It addresses economy-wide emissions. Nor, I should say, was there a utility in Massachusetts playing the same role that Duke Energy played in North Carolina where so much of what North Carolina was dealing with had to do with very particular concerns about utility rate making or resource planning. 
So we're at the end of this show. We've had a lot of great detail. And Jeff, you are truly one of the best reporters in this space because you know so much about this sector, not only what's happening in the States, but also how the industry works. So kudos to you. And thanks so much to you for breaking all of this down for us. Thank you for the kind compliments. Truly great to speak with you. I want to ask you one last question. What is on the top of your watch for list going into 2022? What are the states you're following or the types of policies you'll be tracking? How does that interact with the industry developments that you're seeing? If you could just give us one or two of those, what would be top of your list? Well, you know, I got to start with California. I mean, not only do I live here, but there's just so much going on. We almost got through an episode without mentioning California, Jeff. You blew it all up. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't go through an episode of my life without mentioning it, unfortunately. (laughs) But not only do we have this really contentious net metering debate going on here in California, which you can read about at Canary Media. But, you know, we also have a much broader and more complicated proceeding underway at the California Public Utilities Commission, working on integrating a whole bunch of policies having to do with distributed energy resources, how they're valued, how they can be integrated into how utilities plan for and invest in the grid and the like. We've got major movement on electric vehicles and the country's biggest EV charging infrastructure investments going on. We've got new building codes that will incentivize all electric heating and appliances for homes and solar and energy storage on multifamily and multi-story commercial properties. We've got this massive multi-gigawatt solar and energy storage build-out coming to help replace the closing Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. And we've got this effort to develop round-the-clock resources like geothermal energy and long-duration energy storage. And of course, we've got heat waves, wildfires, and the risk of power outages that have thrust the issues of distributed energy storage, community resilience, and microgrid development onto center stage. Really too much. Really selling it there. Come to California. (laughs) We got regulatory dockets. We got heat waves. We got wildfires. All the things you can want. Uh, I say that as a a fellow resident of California and a state that I truly love. All right. Anything else that you'd want to end the show with? Oh, man. Well, I mean, New York is another fascinating state from the perspective of a guy who's interested in distributed energy. You know, New York has had this reforming the energy vision or rev initiative underway for years now, this super ambitious effort to rework its entire energy regulatory construct to integrate distributed energy's value and eventually create a whole new layer of transactive exchange of that value between utilities and customers. And that's a big ambition. And it's far from clear how New York is going to get there from where it is today. But it has informed a lot of policy development, including a booming community solar and broader community energy market. And then you've got New York City's new decision to ban natural gas in new buildings and the looming challenge of eventually shifting all the buildings in the most populous city in the country away from fossil fuels and how to do that without overwhelming the grid or leaving people in the cold in the depths of winter. And speaking of leaving people in the cold, I really do think that energy resiliency is going to loom large in 2022. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the massive Texas winter storm and blackouts of last year. Texas is engaged on a wide-ranging energy policy reform that could fundamentally alter its unique energy-only deregulated market construct and open new opportunities for distributed energy to play a role. Hurricane Ida ravaged Louisiana and left New Orleans without power for days over the summer and fall, and that forced everyone to look at issues from microgrids to transmission grid resiliency. The Pacific Northwest experienced a heat wave that was considered an impossibility before it actually happened. Climate change is here and building a system that can protect us from the ravages of extreme weather it brings and contribute to reducing carbon emissions that cause it is going to be a problem no state will be able to avoid. 
Wow. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for breaking down everything that happened in 2021. There was no shortage of action, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more in 2022. And all the listeners can go to Canary Media to catch all those developments. They can read your column, your new column, called Down to the Wire, in which you wrote most recently about the avoided cost calculator in California, which is central to the solar net metering fight you just mentioned. So encourage everyone to go there, read Jeff's work. It's truly the best way to understand what the heck is going on in this sector you do again a brilliant job of breaking it down in a really readable way. So Jeff, thank you again for coming on Political Climate. Thank you so much, Julia. If you haven't hit subscribe on Political Climate yet, now is the perfect time. You can hit the follow or subscribe button wherever it is that you listen, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify. We hope that you'll do that and follow along. And also, while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps us grow our audience and reach new people. And finally, thanks to Maria Virginia Alano, our producer on this show. She makes it all possible and to Kyle McDonald, our amazing editor, who makes us sound great. Thanks to both of them. So we'll leave it there for now and be back again in a couple of weeks. Hope everyone has a lovely, safe, happy new year. I'm Julia Piper. We'll be back again soon.